We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I had a friend when I was growing up in uh, high school days and was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And this guy was a great believer, really had a heart for the Lord, uh, was found faithfully in church on every Sunday, uh, had a voracious uh, desire and appetite for the word. Every time there was a prayer opportunity, a prayer meeting, something of that sort, he was there. He was just one of those really faithful guys. And yet, In the entire time that I knew him, I recognized that this guy dealt with a degree of shame. Now, in his case, the shame wasn't necessarily because of anything that he had done or failed to do. But, you see, he came from a household where his mother had died years before when he was younger, leaving the surviving parent, his father, with himself, a younger brother, a younger sister, uh, Dad was kind of a rough-and-tumble kind of character, uh, had been a truck driver, inconsistent when it came to work, so the house wasn't in a very nice neighborhood, the lawns were never well-kept, the house was never well-maintained, the kids were never well-dressed nor never well-fed. Though they were all decent human beings, there always seemed to be kind of this cloud of shame that this friend of mine carried, even as a believer, uh, because he couldn't invite people over to his home, he felt embarrassed at times because his father, being kind of the rough-and-tumble guy, would use uh, foul language and things of that sort, so there was a degree of embarrassment. And um, I always wondered, boy, well, what kind of a cross is that for us to bear as believers when sometimes we deal with the the pain of worthlessness or rejection or just downright shame? Well, my guest tonight has written a book that tackles this very issue. Uh, down through the years, he's authored quite a number of best-selling books, uh, including When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, Depression, Stubborn Darkness, many others, including his latest book entitled simply Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And Ed Welsh, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, yeah, great to be with you, too. I really uh, really enjoy thinking about this particular topic, and um, I'm looking forward to our time together. You mentioned to our listeners that you are a licensed uh, psychologist and faculty member of the um, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a highly respected organization. And you've, you've tackled an issue here that kind of kind of rides down below the surface, I think, in the lives of a lot of believers for different reasons. Now, I shared at my opening remarks the, the shame, the sense of shame that this friend of mine had for so long, that sent, that kind of foreboding sense of, 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 of guilt about this and never knowing quite what to do. I mean, is this something that we need to maybe right out the gate differentiate between guilt and shame or the sense that we'll get under some some circumstances of conviction of the Holy Spirit? Kind of delineate that for us. If yeah, you would. I think that's an important one, but let me go. Let me go back a little bit. You're 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 wrestling with the question: how how big is this issue? And 
And if we go to scripture, it, it seems to advertise shame is in, in many ways the, the premier human struggle. You know, so, you know, you have Genesis, they were naked and without shame. Well, that's just, you know, it's like a, it's like a, the, the story being given away right at the beginning where, you know, it's setting us up to see, okay, then they were naked and with shame. And, and really the entire Bible becomes a, a, a wrestling with this question, what do I do with this sense of shame? So I, I think you're, you're saying something very, very important at the outset with your illustration. Well, here's a guy who was struggling with it, but if if Scripture is true, what we'd expect is that we're going to find we're going to find touches of this in every single person. And, and some of those words you used to describe shame, they boy, I would imagine just about every American would say them. I feel like a failure sometimes. I feel worthless. Who, haven't, who hasn't said that? Um, I feel unlovable. Uh, and but here's here's the sort of the twist that shame gives unlovable. Uh, I'm unlovable, but other people aren't. You know, other people are lovable, but I'm not lovable. There's something there's something especially not quite right about me. That's un, it's under those experiences that we find this this thing that Scripture calls shame. And as you point out, this is something that we really have struggled with since the beginning of mankind. I mean, we, we've got that illustration very early in the garden uh, with the creation of mankind. There he was, there she was, in our in our uh, complete glory. Uh, there was never any sense of guilt or shame. Uh, until then, of course, uh, of the eating of the knowledge of the tree of, of good and evil. And suddenly, man in his nakedness went from that state of being without shame to suddenly burdened down with shame. And this is something that, of course, has, has followed us to one degree or another ever since. And, and if, we, if we follow the, the storyline in those first chapters of Genesis, we find this, this very concise picture of shame. And it seems to revolve around a triad of three things. Well, first of all, you feel naked, obviously. You, you feel exposed. You feel like you are being seen. Somebody, others can see you and you're not quite right. That would be one experience of it. You just feel exposed. Uh, second is, and you, you find this in the Genesis story, you feel like an outcast. You feel like you don't belong anymore. And I would say that that's, in many ways, that's really the key experience. There's something about you that you don't fit in. And I can remember one, uh, this, this, this moment I had in high school where, of course, I, like everybody else in high school, felt like I never fit in. But then I'd have these conversations with my friends, and I found these guys who were, you know, you know great guys who, who just seemed like they had everything. They didn't feel like they fit in. You know, and you begin to realize, does anybody feel like they belong? And it's an elusive human experience. The other part of the experience is you feel unclean. There's something dirty about you. And, and Craig, I think that's where that link between guilt and shame can get a little fuzzy, where, okay, you feel dirty, you feel bad. Well, I think, I think many of us have this instinct that if we feel bad, it means we've done something bad, we've done something wrong, and, and we, we tend to look for something to confess. And, and certainly shame can occasionally be because we have done something we feel like is so wrong. It's, it's a different kind of sin or a different kind of wrong than other people have committed. And so there's that sense we, well, for example, I, I uh, drove to work today and I expect if today was like any other day, I rolled through a stop sign or two. And, 
ends up breaking the law, and I'm not trying to say I'm proud of it, but but I'm willing to acknowledge it because I'm I'm thinking, I'm hoping that that you rolled through a stop sign today too, and and, and so you're you're shaking your head and say, yeah, 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 I'm with you. I know I know what you're talking about, but there there are other kinds of wrongs that we could talk about where nobody's shaking their head and they're just sort of looking at us. So occasionally the the bad that we feel is a result of, of what we've done. We just feel like what we've done is very different and, and more disgraceful than anything anybody else has done. The other, the larger part of shame, which you've already spoken about, is is we feel bad, we feel unclean, but it's it, you can you can confess all day, and it's not going to make any difference. Um, it's because we are associated with things or people who have done unclean things to us. And, and certainly, you know, you, you mentioned one, just associations with poverty and not having anything. Well, there's the literal sense of feeling worthless and not fitting in. The, the other illustrations that, that probably most of us would immediately think of would be some kind of sexual violation where you have been, it's not what you've done. You feel, obviously, you feel dirty, but you can't confess that dirtiness because it's a dirtiness that somebody else has thrown on you or somebody who's been divorced. Um, the same thing, if they were on the bad end of divorce where, where the spouse left them there, there's a sense that there's something wrong with me there's something bad about me and it's not because of what they've done it's because of what has been done to them so so shame really is a much larger struggle if uh, than guilt guilt can be one part of shame but shame is a much, much wider experience. Tackling the topic today as we're joined by a best-selling author Edward Welsh a look at Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with best-selling author Ed Welsh. He is a licensed psychologist and faculty member of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And uh, amongst the number of titles that he's written down through the years, his latest, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Let's um, maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic, Ed, as we help folks understand sometimes the difference between what maybe can be good shame in letting us know, uh, maybe I'm not using the right phraseology here, but letting us know that there's something amiss in our lives that we need to address versus the kind of shame that's kind of brought upon us typically by circumstances that oftentimes are either outside of our control or, or, or had nothing to do with our own actions? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, guess, I guess I tend to think about it this way. I think of, of guilt has a bit more benefit than shame. <laughs> Where, where guilt, you know, our conscience can remind us, hey, I did wrong, and it's time for confession. Shame, is, it, it tends to be much more renegade. And, and I, I, I don't find really that often in Scripture. Occasionally you find it. Um, but, but very infrequently do you find in Scripture the encouragement for people to experience shame. There were times where Israel was just completely hard-hearted, and, and, and the Lord essentially says, shame on you. Uh, you, you, have, you have no shame anymore. But but when, when when I see the Lord dealing with individual people, especially when we race up to the New Testament and see Jesus in action, all we see is just this incredible compassion for those who wrestle with shame. So so I, I think the scripture is much more interested in that question, okay, here's this here's this soul deadening struggle that human beings can have. What is the way through it? 
working through that is is a process, isn't it? And it's a process that can be different for everybody. And and I would imagine a lot of it comes down to flipping the the perspective. In other words, oftentimes that shame is based on how we perceive others and how they perceive us. Do we then have to kind of move beyond that to begin to see the way God perceives us? Yeah, boy, absolutely. I think you, you just you just hit hit on something very important that 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 you know I want to learn of these things as we're speaking as well. And and as, as we understand the way God works, it's not oh, oh all of a sudden in a half hour we're going to be free of shame. It's it's what we're you know what we're looking for is just maybe just a little glimmer, you know, just something that. That 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 approximates hope, okay, and just something that surprises us a little bit, where we say, "Oh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting our God, the Holy God, to have this kind of concern for for outcasts." That that's what we're looking for, just in, a, in one sense, to be intrigued by a God who doesn't doesn't conform to our expectations and and one of the things you said when you talked about the phone lines being down is, is probably relevant to right now too where in a sense what, what the lord says i think is 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 listen okay just just sit down and and listen and which is so unusual for that that's surprising in and of itself for people who wrestle with shame they feel like they have to do something they have to wash themselves more they have to they have to somehow be a fail a, a success before they're able to to be able to appear before God and other people but but what you have in scripture is a god who says listen listen to listen to stories of people who experience shame and watch watch my affection for them and and then story after story in scripture that's that's what we receive you know what struck me so interesting going back to my my central example earlier on of this friend of mine who had grown up in you know less than ideal circumstances i i always took note of the fact Ed, that here was someone who because he was not a person of of great wealth or of status had a very easy time in showing a sense of compassion toward others. Uh, Here was someone who would volunteer during the holidays at a soup kitchen to help feed the needy during Thanksgiving and Christmas and so forth, Um, who, even though he had limited means, uh, was someone who tithed frequently, was was eager to do something to help somebody else Mm. out who was in need. His, his own life experience gave him the ability to see need in others, and yet when he turned that mirror on himself, yep. he saw someone that was a loser, who was worthless, who didn't feel comfortable going to certain events because he couldn't dress as nice as the others. It's yeah, amazing how it, there was a degree to which the shame taught him things about others that enabled him to become more understanding, more caring, more compassionate, and yet, as much as it benefited him to a degree in that sense, mm-hmm. never benefited his own viewpoint of himself. But it's a it's a good starting point what you're saying, where 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 people who struggle with shame, you know, it, maybe we could put it this way: an outcast can recognize other outcasts. Mm, okay. They. They have keen eyes for other outcasts, and 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 that seems to be the story of the New Testament, where here comes here comes the king, and and you know, he's, you know his birth is announced with angels and prophecies, but but if you're an outcast and you start reading through the very beginning of the New Testament, what you say is, hold it, here's I recognize this guy, okay. 
he doesn't belong either. He's on the outs as well. Here's a per. I recognize him. Is it possible that he might even recognize me? And, and, and then the, the the greatest indignity. They go down to Egypt. It's you know, you know Egypt is just a horrifying thing for a Jew. That's you know that's where they were enslaved and. And so he spends a, a couple early years in Egypt. You know, episode after episode, you look at you look at the Messiah, and 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 an outcast is able to spot Jesus better than anybody else because he is like them. And then then when you then when you watch his ministry take shape, it's it, it's the most peculiar thing. I mean, if you want to have a reputation you go among the movers and the shakers and the influencers and 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 Jesus was immediately on the outs and he was on the outs with the mover and shakers because here you remember that original complaint hey he can't be one of us because he eats with sinners mm-hmm. and and tax collectors he he eats with people who are on the outs he eats with the unclean which makes him unclean himself and and that was that was the original rap against Jesus that he associates himself with the outcasts and and so you know to to use your friend as the illustration what we're you know what we're doing is okay you got it you recognize another outcast so watch him watch you know watch him walk through life now now notice this do you see that that outcast Jesus Christ he makes a beeline toward you okay and and most people really wrestle with shame as sort of their full time job. They they don't believe it. And and I think well, you know, the, the scripture goes on and says, well, let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more. But at some point, I think those who wrestle wrestle with shame, they they're going to have to do something. So in, in a sense, the Lord says, hear the stories, just listen. And then He says, okay, now respond. And and the response can be as simple as. Amen. Okay, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I believe you even pursue me as an outcast. I believe that you, and here's, here's a term that Scripture uses, you turn your face to me. And when somebody turns their face to you, it's this, it's this sign that you belong to them. It's a sign of their pleasure and their goodwill toward you. At some point, those who wrestle with shame, they're going to have to not only hear these beautiful words, but they're going to have to say, yes, I believe them. I believe that they're words that, that, that the Lord says to me. We're so comfortable sometimes living in kind of that pain because it's something that's very familiar, that sense of worthlessness and inferiority or living with rejection, humiliation, failure. And certainly a lot of people these days in light of what's transpired in the economy, um, people who have worked hard at their career um, and achieved a modicum of success and then suddenly because of no fault of their own, lost a job lost a home, have not been able to regain employment, and they're walking around with that sense of shame. Let's talk about that angle when we come back. And turning about perspective on this topic, uh, seeing this as God sees us, seeing ourselves as God sees us. Shame interrupted. Best-selling author Edward Welch with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've got best-selling author with us today, Ed Welsh. His latest book is called Shame Interrupted. 
How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Got a number of best-selling books to his credit. He also serves as a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the notable Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Been dealing with this topic, and you know, if you're someone who walks around, who lives with, who is an intimate of shame, that sense of rejection and worthlessness and weakness, humiliation, failure, and boy, certainly that that sense of failure, I think, is something that so many people these days, Ed, in the wake of what's been going on with the economic decline, have really had to struggle with. What kind of advice, what kind of insight can you offer to somebody who's who's walking around with that kind of shame, lost the job, lost the house, they feel like they're failure at caring for their family, and yet, what do they do? Uh, there's... There's nothing unique to this particular era in how we measure who we are by how much we make. And 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 I don't live in the Bay Area, but but I would think that it would be only be more obvious in in the Bay Area. There's nothing unique to that because I think you found the same thing in the New Testament. And because the you know, the poor they were they were the ones who were literally were worthless. Um, and you know that's that's you know, a prominent way we measure our worth. What's our income? What's the status of our job? And, and and so I think there there are a couple of things that that Scripture does, that, that Jesus does. The the first thing is he says, hey, this is not a mirage. It's not simply you love money so much and you love your reputation. Uh, Jesus is is acknowledging that poverty and and financial difficulties are truly hard thing, and hard things that, that 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 can be experienced shamefully before the community. And and then you keep your eyes open in the Scripture. And and so here, Matthew chapter five, for example. It's you know one of one of the the early discourses that, that we have from Jesus, and here's how it starts: <laughs> you know, Blessed are the poor, mm. blessed are the poor. Now, now that's not going to make people out of a job feel really you know really real nice all of a sudden, but it, it, it should capture our attention just a little bit, <laughs> where once again. It's as if it's as if Jesus is aiming for the outcast and the shamed. That's they are his people, and and so so it's very intentional that he starts out the beatitudes by saying, "Blessed are the poor." He's he's showing how things are not the way they seem. That those who are outcast are those are the people of the living God. They are the ones who belong ultimately to the King. And, and what does he say? I think that's the one where he says, "Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven." And again, it's you know, like you said earlier. This is a process, um, and, and nobody's going to go away saying, "Oh, this is okay, great. My shame is all done now, and I, I feel fine about not having work." It's, it's one of the just, big um, wedges, though, that we need to address here is to understand that in this process, ultimately. Um, without regard to what the source might be of our shame, sometimes it's controllable, a lot of times it isn't, to ultimately understand that each and every one of us were bought with a price and that there is much that can be said about that um, that ultimate and enormous Christ, uh, sacrifice that Christ paid for us uh, so that in and through that sacrifice, that, that, that enormous pearl of great price, as Scripture says, uh, we can learn to, to, to see our identity as he sees our identity and be able to shed that sense of shame after a while? I, I think what we're saying is that we we tend to think that the work of Christ on the cross is for forgiveness of sins in the narrowest sense. But 
But you know, here's the problem: you go into the courtroom, and and the judge says you're you're not guilty, and you're forgiven. You leave the courtroom, and you still feel disgusting. Well, you know, in some ways, the the verdict doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You feel you still feel like a disgrace. I, I think what we're what we're what we're moving toward is what happened at the cross is much bigger than we will ever ever imagine. And and in, in that forgiveness of sins, we have been given Christ Himself. And 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 we and and here's. Shame is about associations. Are you associated with your poverty? Are you associated with the person who abused you? Uh, are you associated with your sins? Well, what, what Jesus does at the cross is he is he snips all those old associations and he says, "You are you are now associated with me." And and so you know, there's that, that wonderful passage in Peter: "You are chosen." You know, this is these are all words. Specifically to those who wrestle with shame, a chosen people, you're chosen. Okay, a royal priesthood, you're rich. Uh, a holy nation, you're 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 even more than clean. You're holy. And then that 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 thing that Peter says, a people belonging to God, a people belonging to God. That's all part of the package of of the gospel of Christ. The, the gospel is for our guilt, and the gospel is for our shame. Isn't it interesting too? I think of that passage: the people belonging to God, people that God. Calls having been set apart. So often we think of ourselves in the negative sense of having been set apart as being an outcast um, and so forth, and yet to understand that there is another type of being set apart, called by his name, paid for by his blood, where now all of a sudden we can understand that that being somebody different than the rest can actually be something very special. It's, uh, it- it, 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 it's, it's amazing the way the scripture uses the same kind of words. Um, yeah, you're set apart. Now it's a set apart like you're, okay, you're on the traveling baseball team. <laughs> now you're set apart. You're, you're in this elite organization. Now you're set apart where you are absolute, you are the one who is known by name by the king. So, so it's a set apart, but it's a set apart that warms our soul and, and says that we, you know, that, here's, here, here, this seems to be the very hub of scripture where, where the Lord says to us in Christ, I am yours and you are mine. We are pe- people belonging to God. That's what we're set apart for. Ultimately, Ed, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. For those that have been eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon that say, boy, you guys have really nailed it. You are articulating exactly where I'm at. How do I begin getting on this road to understand that I can go from that sense of being an outsider, an outcast, to understand what it means to take on the mantle of being set apart in his name. How does that process begin? Yeah. I, I hate to seem self-aggrandizing and, and, and talk about my own book, but but that Shame Interrupted book is, it, it's really looking at, it's basically just looking at Scripture, but looking at it through the question, what do I do with my shame? And, and just watching these beautiful words unfold. So, so, so that you know that can be sort of a, a coach, a friend, if you will, just to help people have eyes to see how Scripture does speak to shame over and over again. And 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 once you once you see it, once you're able to see those beautiful words, then you don't need the help as much, and you can just jump into Scripture and see them. But going back to I think what you said earlier, it's just allow that little little nugget of hope to just settle in. Okay, 
that that maybe our God says things to our sense of disgrace and worthlessness that is much more than we ever imagined before. Just to have that hope, that's what a great place to start that would be. Indeed so. And, and hope is, I think, an, an internal and, and important word uh, that can be a central starting point of our focus. You know, when blame shows up on the doorstep, uh, we're having that sense of shame. Uh, we feel like we're worthless. We've been rejected. We're outcast. Um, and to begin to incorporate God's viewpoint on who we are uh, and to begin to see ourselves, not necessarily through how we perceive others see us, but rather how we should understand God sees us is the important difference when it comes to shame interrupted. The new book, by the way, which, as we mentioned before, um, is uh, published by New Growth Press. And uh, you can get more information online at newgrowthpressbookstore.com or through any Bay Area bookstore. And our thanks to best-selling author Ed Welsh for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As much as money is so much a part of the topic of what's going on in the world and in our nation, it even filters down to our own personal lives. And, you know, ironically, when we think about it in in Western culture and in American society, I think um, in specific, um, we have a lot of ideas about money and the connection to money and masculinity and what that means. A lot of men, I think, feel as if they have been emasculated. Since uh, fall of 2008, when we saw the implosion of Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers at all, to see people who have lost their jobs, they've lost life savings, they've lost retirement dollars, they've lost their homes. Many of the things that particularly we as men, as the breadwinners of the family, tie into what we consider to be marks of success and what it means to be a man. And yet, as my next guest will suggest, um, the true meaning of what it is to be a man uh, is not measured by economic success, particularly when we look at this from a biblical or Christian worldview. He is Richard Simmons, author of The True Measure of a Man. He also serves as director of the Center for Executive Leadership, a Christian-based community resource, and joins us now by phone. And Richard, good afternoon and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Craig. Thank you. This has got to be a tough topic, and certainly men listening to our conversation here tonight who have lost jobs seen their livelihood and their identity in many cases go down the drain because of that, watched their fortunes erode away because of what's transpired on Wall Street, up to and including in some cases the loss of the very roof over their heads, that the blow that that must mean to a man and his sense of, of, of self-worth and self-esteem must be horrific. Yeah, it is. And uh, what most men don't realize is the driving force in their lives, even Christian men, that so many of us, when it gets right down to it, get our sense of worth and identity um, and significance based on how well we perform out in the worst workplace. That's where we get, uh, I guess you could say that's how we define ourselves. And so when we run into uh, economic uh, calamity, economic problems, it can be devastating. And, you know, I, I think, to be fair, a lot of us guys, and I think myself included, if, if somebody stops me on the street or I'm, I'm talking to an acquaintance that I hasn't seen in, in many, many years, somebody might ask you casually, so so what do you do for a living? And, and we're inclined, at least I know I am, I'm more inclined to, to tell you who I am as opposed to what I do. In other That's words, right. I will probably say, well, I'm a radio broadcaster, I, have, I host 
the talk show, things of this sort, um, as opposed to speaking about specifically the details of the job. Uh, is part of that uniquely a, a Western or more specifically American ideal? And if we wrap our identity and to a degree our sense of self-worth and value uh, into our livelihood and our ability to earn money and how successful we are at same, and then all of a sudden the carpet, through no fault of our own, is ripped out from underneath us, what does that do to a man at every level, not only economically, emotionally, but even spiritually? Well, what most men don't realize is that life for them is all about what I do as far as you know my, my, my work uh, and how successful I am at what I do, which then makes me wonder, what do you think about what I do? How do you rate what I do? Which then <clears throat> leads to what I think is the, the great fear that most men struggle with, even though sometimes they're not aware of it, is what if I fail at what I do? Uh, that failure, the fear of failure, is like a psychological death for most, most men. Um, what I'm finding is that men, in many instances, are not driven to succeed. They are driven not to fail. And this, this creates all kind of dysfunction in their lives. It cascades into so many areas, uh, including depression. Um, and it's, uh, it's a real problem that men are just kind of coming to grips with, and it creates all kind of pain in their lives, and they don't want to tell anybody about it. Uh, we have this idea that, that if, if I'm experiencing pain, if I'm struggling, I am betraying my male identity, and we just want to hold it in and not tell anybody. Well, let's face it. I mean, this is part of what we do. We put, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, some do, uh, into their livelihood. They're the breadwinners. They, the man is, uh, you know, providing that, uh, that covering over the household. Uh, the economic aspect of protection, I think, is is high on the agenda. We want to make sure that our families are well cared for, that they enjoy, you know, the finer things in life, that the kids can grow up with good education, someday send our daughters off to be married with a nice wedding, all of the entrapments that are tied into our ability to earn. So then when suddenly that is taken away from us, or we're suddenly faced by this overwhelming fear of failure, uh, what does that do? How does that impact our relationships with, with family, with spouses, and with the Lord? That is a great question. Um, what most people don't realize is that, you know, we have two basic psychological needs, and I explore this in the book. Women have a, primarily a psychological, we both have it, but women have more of a psychological need for security. Men, on the other hand, have a much greater need for significance, that my life matters, that my life uh, uh, is worth something, and therefore, uh, I've, I've seen this when I meet with couples who may have to sell their house. The wife is glad to do it because it makes her feel better about their financial situation, but for a man, it goes much deeper because his significance is threatened, his manhood is threatened, and it can just devastate him. And then it impacts the relationship in the marriage, his relationship with his children, and he, and he spends so much of his time... Um, uh, in silence, carrying a lot of pain around. It's like that old song by Simon and Garfunkel. I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. And that's what most men think that they're supposed to be today, and it creates all kind of problems in their home. And so much of this, of course, uh, Richard, as you suggest inside the pages of the book, goes to the heart of what have essentially been false ideas about what it means to be successful. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, that, that is a huge issue, and um, you know the second half of the book is uh, focuses on how to 
help men be set free from this. And what you just uh, uh, mentioned is, is, is a major part of this. Uh, Blaise Pascal said the reason that we struggle with life so much is because we have false ideas about reality. And men in, in the modern world particularly struggle with this. We have false ideas about what is true masculinity. We have false ideas about what does it really mean to be successful in life. And we have false ideas about what is true wealth. What does it mean to really be wealthy? And so what men don't realize is how important it is to get um, our lives in harmony with what is true. Because as Jesus himself said, it's the truth that will set you free. And this, is, to me, is so important to be set free from what I call this success trap that we get so caught up in. Talk to us a bit about then what men need to do to, re, to recalibrate their thinking, so to speak. I mean, a lot of us, we, we not only have had this pounded into our heads since childhood, you got to get a job, you got to get educated, you got to go get a career, and we measure success based on, you know, how much money is in the bank and the size and the quality of the vacations that we take, all of these yardsticks, so to speak, that all comes down to finance and money, um, and we end up, I think as you're suggesting, is spending an awful lot of time pursuing an awful lo- a lot of lies. That's, that's correct. And, um, Craig, there are a number of things that I, I could say to you. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that this is true of my life because at the heart of wisdom is just understanding yourself, understanding what makes you tick. Um, second uh, is uh, what I just we talked about, understanding the lies of, of life that we've bought into. Uh, I talk at length about, you know, what is the object of life? If the object of life is to be wealthy and prosperous and comfortable, then economic misfortune or failure is going to devastate you. But if the object of life is the transformation of my character, the maturing of my soul, and knowing God personally, then the storms of life, the economic storms of life, can be a blessing based on the way I respond to it. But probably the most important thing, and I talk about, you know, focusing on the legacy that we leave behind, how that will impact us. But the most important thing is, is realizing this, that I get my sense of worth and value based on what other people really think about me. You know, if I perform well, then people think well of me. I win their approval. And so I spend so much of my time um, seeking to please them because that's the most important people in my life. That's the audience I'm trying to please. And my challenge to men is, what do you think would happen if Jesus is the most important person in your life, if that's where you get your sense of worth and value, because Jesus loves you, not based on your performance, but on who you are. You're of such great value to him because we're created in his image. And as believers, we're his children. And therefore, we have great value. It's like that verse in Ephesians 2.10 that says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means work of art. We are God's masterpiece. We are of great value to him. And if a man can really get that into his life, it will change him radically. What's the starting point? Uh, obviously, I think a lot of self-introspection. I mean, a lot of guys, when they go through challenges, they're facing uh, the sp- prospect of, of losing a lot. They're overwhelmed uh, to a great degree by, by fear. I think oftentimes we we uh, then operate or function out of a sense of panic and not really reality-based. And guys are saying, well, it's time to you know brush up the resume, Richard, and <laughs> you know get ready to start all over again. Do we need to maybe get reevaluated? Not as 
as we prep for the next big interview with the potential employer, but rather to, to then look at it as you're suggesting from what are the kind of questions, not that the, the, the prospective employer would be asking me across from the table, but what are the kind of questions that God would be asking me? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the starting place is, uh, and you kind of uh, hinted at it, is we, we have to reorient our thinking and our approach to life and our approach to work. You know, it, it's it, it, it's not so much um, uh, how much money I make. It's, you know, what is God calling me to do with the rest of my life? Uh, you know, that's why I think if a man really starts thinking about his legacy, um, you know, when his life is over, what will his life have been all about? And it's when you begin to think in those terms, you don't get so caught up in, uh, you know, the amount of money you make. You really want to seek to... to uh, do work and and I guess you could say do with your life what will have the greatest impact on others and what will advance the kingdom of God. Yeah, ultimately, the true measure of a man not being based on the size of your uh, portfolio, your bank account, the size of the home that you live in, but but rather ultimately on uh, the measure of your relationship before God. Richard Simmons, the author of The True Measure of a Man. Information, by the way, on the book, either through Amazon.com or through Richard's website at thetruemeasureofaman.com. That's thetruemeasureofaman.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.